0: Come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave
1: To experience fantastic things You have to put yourself in fantastic places. Those are the words of the biologist, explorer, conservationist, and hunter, who will also serve as the featured keynote speaker at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic National Banquet coming up on Saturday, March 2nd. The bad news for our listeners, tickets are already sold out for the national banquet. But the good news is that we've got Mr. Donnie Vincent ready to roll right now on this episode of On the Wing podcast. When I, when I set this up, the number one goal for me was to help sell tickets, Donnie. And uh, we don't have to worry about that. Tickets are sold. But uh, the other goals that I have here is to, for folks that are coming to the banquet that have those precious tickets in their hands to get a little uh, more knowledge about Donnie Vincent, who he is, what makes him tick, his conservation ethic. And uh, second, as a personally as a big fan of Donnie's work, I'm hoping that the broader Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience will be inspired to check out DonnieVincent.com because there is a wealth of films there that will inspire you and stoke the fires of your interest in biology, adventure, passion, and, of course, hunting Um, and taking us to all those fantastic places where our bird dogs take us. And this is a double whammy. Not only do we have Donnie Vincent, we have Marilyn Vetter, the president and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever joining me. You're kind of the co-host for this one, Marilyn. <laughs> okay. Um, this is the first time you've been back to the podcast since we did the uh, introduction uh, and went through your background. So we will do, um, in in the coming weeks, kind of a, my first year as the president and CEO edition. But uh, as we dive in, let's give a little bit of taste of what your year has been like behind your bird dogs. Um, so, first of all, thank you both very much, Donnie, Marilyn. I will start with Marilyn, just introductions a little bit. Um, what's your first uh, year as a CEO from a hunting perspective Ben? How has the hunting season been?
0: Oh, it's funny. We were talking about this and, and joking that if I measured my hunting season in steps... It w- it's been phenomenal I have been <laughs> in Iowa Nebraska South Dakota Montana North Dakota Minnesota this weekend and it's been phenomenal I've met a lot of new people actually been out with a lot of friends family that I hadn't been able to get out with before I would say that I've chalked up a lot more memories than I have birds <laughs> but that's okay honestly yeah. uh, we have a new dog on our line that's been really fun to watch him grow and
1: which, which is the new dog
0: that's the young male named.
1: oh okay the what, the public land rooster we got this weekend yeah
0: exactly yeah.
1: what was what was that pup's name six six okay that what, what's the now you and Clyde have super fun reasons for why you name your dog so how what? did six get his name
0: well, this was one that we disagreed on, but it was his <laughs> dog, so he got to... <laughs> <laughs> Did you see
1: the eye roll, him? <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: he named him after, there's a movie called The Gray Man, or Gray Man, okay. that's about, basically about, you know, like an undercover kind of CIA agent, uh-huh. that, you know, once you're an, an agent, you don't have to have a name anymore, you're <laughs> a number, and Gray Man was six.
1: Awesome. And you have a a Labrador, right? I do. Donnie? Yeah, black lab. Yeah, what, female. What is your pup's name?
2: Uh, Ellie. 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 I've had a, a, I've had a Claire, a Maggie, and now I have an Ellie. All black females. Yeah.
1: Claire, Maggie, and any yeah. any rationale behind the names?
2: No, I adopted Claire or. Purchased her, but she was kind of a—I guess you would call it—washed-up trials dog. Okay, and uh, and I really learned a lot about having a dog that actually listened when when I picked her up, and it was such a thrilling uh, way to hunt. Uh, she would actually take commands from me, and you know she hunted so so good and. Um, and then I got Maggie and tried to do it all myself and uh it was way, way harder than <laughs> and she was while still a great dog, I needed I How needed, many
1: times have you heard that before, <laughs> Marilyn? Yep, I needed yes.
2: lots of help and then uh and then I got Ellie from uh, Tom Dawkins. So, oh, okay. And, and then Tom's uh, trained her, so she's really super good. Oh, yeah. uh, that's Yeah. That's awesome. Tom man. just sent me a text one day of him holding this little black fat maggot and just said, will this one do? And <laughs> I said, yep, that one will do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, I read uh, – w- what's it like to hear w- – people quoting you (laughs) is that that an odd sensation because that's never happened to me before i mean it's i
2: will yeah i'll never get used to it it's that yeah it's it's different yeah that's for sure yeah so
1: so the quote i read if you if you google donnie vincent yeah this quote comes up yeah to experience fantastic things you have to put yourself in fantastic places and first of all i love that i appreciate that and and we I, I've often thought about where our bird dogs take us. There's sure. A, Marilyn, there's no uh, there there's no ugly places no, that none. our bird dogs chase us to hunt birds, right?
0: Absolutely
1: not. And and this quote resonated with and then I connected it in your in your bio and um on your website the word explorer. Nobody uses the word explorer in their career like in the resume anymore but this was a a decision right like you very purposefully like biologist first Mm -hmm. explorer number two so i I guess tell me about explorer what what's the decision making process in your mind for using the word explorer
2: sure well and i'll tell you about um, fantastic things and fantastic places i went to uh, i did a hunt in the arctic circle several years ago and and uh, I drew a coveted moose tag in this particular area that you can't even draw a moose tag in anymore. But um, I talked to a pilot and he said, you know, kind of how do you want to hunt it? And I said, I want to I want to really experience um, the Arctic Circle. And I'd been there a number of times, but I really wanted to experience it. And so I told him he thought I was nuts. But I said, I want to come before moose season and just kind of get settled into the area and watch it you know, the end of summer, and then I want to be there all through fall and into when things start to freeze. And so I ended up staying for uh, 22 or 23 days, something like that. And and, and, wow. and and when I started, all the leaves were green, all the alders were green, the grass was green, the mosquitoes were out, the gnats were out, and, and uh, the moose had velvet on their, on their antlers. And then I got to watch all of fall come in and the peak colors, and mm. I got to watch the bulls you know, shed their velvet by rubbing and raking and, and then, uh, start to fighting and go into the full rut. And, and then I got to see them starting to wind down, right. Build their harems of cows and then start to kind of push off away from the cows and start to, uh, group back up with their bulls. And I got to, I got to watch this whole process and I'll never forget when the pilot landed, you know, he got out and he looked at me and he's, you know, he dropped me off 22 days ago. And, and he was opening his hatch, and I was getting my bags together, and he's looking over his shoulder, and he's like, do you see any uh, Do you see any good bulls? And I saw, yeah, I, I saw lots of good bulls. And he said, any really big ones? And I said, most of them are really big. Mm. And, and he said, did you see any wolves? And I said, I've been surrounded by packs of wolves three different times on this hunt. And, mm. and he started listing off all these things uh, from the Northern Lights and Grizzly Bears and all of these things, and he looked over at me, and I said, I saw all that, and multiple times, and, and he kind of, he's the one that said it to me. He said, people come up here for five, six, seven days, and they want to experience everything that you experienced, but he said, to really do it, you have to be here and live here and, and, and want to see these things and want to go through kind of the hardships, and that's what, I said, yeah, I, that's what I wanted to experience, and so that's where, you know, kind of that, that quote yeah, that came quote from, came. and oh. and to be honest with you, and this is going to sound maybe semi sensational but really middle school going through high school I didn't have a career path I didn't have this idea of this is exactly what I'm going to do this is exactly where I'm going to invest my money and my time and how I'm going to educate myself this is the job I want to get none of that was even on my radar I just wanted to explore I wanted to see Alaska Mm. I wanted to see fish and I want to see birds and experience all these things and My jobs at the time, I was working in um, cardiovascular surgery in Minneapolis, and that was literally just to make money Hmm. to uh, go and experience and live in the outdoors as much as I could, so that's what I was doing, and that's what I was...
1: What were you doing in cardiovascular? You,
2: I was just a technician. Okay. I, I huh. would I would uh, sometimes scrub in with the physician, and other times I was just assisting in whatever manner that I could in different procedures, and and uh, uh, pre and post and during, and, and wow. um, it was fascinating. I considered going to medical school at one time, and mm-hmm. then I thought, uh, I talked to a friend of mine who... His grandfather was a physician, his father was a physician, and he's now becoming, was becoming a physician. And And we were eating lunch one day, and he said, do you love it, and medicine? And I said, no. Mm. And he said, is it something that is just burning inside of you? And I said, no. I said, I just... I'm intrigued to make that much money so that I can hunt and fish more. And he's like, you're, you're going to hate this. You're going to hate medical school. Did
1: he stay with it?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's like, yeah. And and,
2: yeah, well he told me, he said, this has been my life's goal since as long as I can remember. And and he's, he's like, and I barely made it barely had the, you know, and, and I thought, okay, that's, maybe not going to work out and then I went kind of the biology route Yeah, Uh, a friend of mine was at the University of Minnesota and, um, and she found a brochure for the College of Natural Resources and there was a cow moose on the cover and I was having coffee with her and she just said I don't know what's in here but whatever it is, it has to be something to something do with you.
1: And this is in high school? This
2: is post-high school. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, but I was just, you know, because I, I didn't know huh. really. All I was doing was thinking about my next time uh-huh. going out. It wasn't just exploring. I wasn't just being a naturalist. I was hunting. I wanted to mm-hmm. hunt and kill caribou. I wanted to hunt ptarmigan, pheasants, and um i wanted to catch trout and see these animals i want to see them but in a sporting fashion mm. you know that's really I, I i'm enamored to see these animals in any fashion but i want to see them i want to see my life is i kind of like to emulate what i see as oil paintings right when you mm. see guys standing above dogs in natural prairie and savannah pines and i want to experience those things because when people paint images like is up behind your head bob mm-hmm. they're perfect they paint them perfect the habitat is perfect the dogs are perfect the guns are perfect the gentlemen are painted perfect i want to live these things and when you see photographs like when you see photographs of fred bear leaning on his recurve and record book caribou or laying at his feet and you can tell he's in the wildest of places and jack o'connor that's i just literally wanted to do those things and the job whatever job i was doing was just Money to go and do those things, mm. and so um, that's all I ever wanted to do—see, experience—and it hasn't. I'm 49 now, and it hasn't. I feel like I'm 18. It hasn't I'm, changed in the least.
1: I'm 49 as well, and we just got done with a very early birthday party for me uh, to turn 50 <laughs> oh, later yeah, this yes, year. Yeah, you saw the. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming off a shocker today, uh, as we record this in mid-December. Uh, on a Monday, just a couple of days ahead of Marilyn and Sarah Mills, our um, HR director, s- surprised me. So we're very similar in age, very similar thought processes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and, and you do take stock when you're 49. You're kind of like midway through life, right? Let's hope. Anyways. Right? Yeah. I, you, God willing. I st- doubt I'm midway through life, but, <laughs> yeah, there's
2: too many airplanes and slippery cliffs in my future to yeah. to be midway through life, but.
1: So when you did that moose adventure, mm-hmm. twenty-one days in, in the Arctic, mm-hmm. was that between when you went? It was that pre or um, after you went to college? To after that was after. after, but it was yep. before because you didn't film that one, right? That, that I, I did. Oh, you did. I, film I did that film. One, I
2: didn't come out with a film of that particular trip, but I have one of the things that we realized very early on in our filming is that. Um, <laughs> this is gonna semi embarrassing, but also um something that I quite enjoy. I hunt a lot mm-hmm. I kill very little mm. and so um I went on that hunt holding a coveted moose tag, and i had I passed a lot of really, really big bull moose because i had my eye on a couple of bulls there that were you know world class like nearly world record you know they're very very large and and they both ended up giving me the slip one I came very close. Very, very close to arrowing. And right as I was in final approach of – I had him bedded probably – he's probably 75 yards in front of me bedded just laying there. And his palms – I'll never forget his antlers were sticking up. And he – oh, my word. He was so big. And right as I was in final approach, um, here comes a super cub flying at tree level. And here it is, an Alaska State Trooper. Um, And he's not – he has no idea I'm stalking moose, Um, he was such a nice guy. But he saw, had seen my camp, and so he just inadvertently was landing to check my license to make sure that I had wow. proper tags, and and uh, and he landed, and the moose stood up and walked, just walked away, and and uh, I never saw him. I saw him one other time, and uh, he's such a cool bull. And he, had, mm-hmm. I saw him. Um, he had something like 18 cows with him the last time I saw him. Mm. He's definitely came, 18. 18. Yeah. He. I saw all these cows. Um, coming out of the timber going into this little this large uh kind of duck pond wetland area and i saw all these cows together boom boom wow. boom and i was sitting there uh my lead photographer at the time william altman i looked over him and i said man i wonder what the bull is that has all those cows and then he Ooh. walks out and we looked at each other We're like yeah of course it's, of course him. it's you him. know <laughs> yeah it's and amazing so,
1: though you think you're alone in the middle of oh that. yeah and then uh, i get the... checked
2: it's amazing people ask me that, you know i get checked far less at you know, the boat landing on Lake Michigan. Then I've been checked in the Arctic circle because <laughs> those pilots see you and they're just, whoop, they come right in. But, um, so we filmed that and we learned early on that in in the beginning we thought we would go on a trip, film it, come out with a film, mm-hmm. go on a trip, film it, come out with a mm-hmm. film. But we quickly realized that our work would benefit greatly from layers of, and so, you know, for instance, one of our films, the other side is a film that we did about bear hunting mm-hmm. that's filmed over six years and so we end up which is really great because we get to go back and look at this footage and you know and you kind of get to reevaluate are you the same person are you the same man are you doing this for the same reasons are the bears do they hold as much value to you as they have over these projects and it's really Hmm. quite interesting to see the different images and and to kind of see uh the journey that you are as as a man and a hunter and so and and uh, and that's how we kind of do our films. I I legitimately have probably five or six films that I could put out right now that are wow. um, would be pretty unbelievable, but I just haven't put them together yet.
1: And so, Joe, you were on Joe Rogan's podcast. I was uh, eight years ago. Yeah, it's like twenty.
2: It's twenty eighteen. So five years five ago. Years five ago. years ago. Yep.
1: And right out of the gates, Joe made that point that you you've done tremendous job going deeper you know obviously joe and steven Rennell are, are friends and mm-hmm. he compliments steven throughout that podcast but talks about the depth that you go into with your films and i think anybody that consumes outdoor media understands or recognize very quickly the difference in the amount of care and love and time which i think is probably the most important thing because you're an independent business person, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got a mortgage to pay. You got yes, to, you got to buy a Perina Pro plan for that. Yeah, years yeah. too, right? Yeah, and yeah. and you're you're not turning and burning when it comes to no shows. No, yeah. and it, you know Joe made that point over and over, and I would echo it. It's it's it, so that's that's why I asked you that question about the moose hunting. You know, spending twenty plus days without even. Uh, were you hunting with a firearm or a, oh, a with a bow? With a bow, yeah. Without Without a, bowl. With a
2: with a gun, it would have been done.
1: <clears throat> you know, you're yeah. you're in the Arctic through you know autumn, the late summer. I'm assuming the autumn as mm-hmm. the leaves are changing. Just to experience, to immerse yourself, and you made that point in all the podcasts I've listened and listened to, the reading I've done. It's really critically important to you to be an explorer. Yeah, right. It's it's not. You're not, you don't bill yourself as a, you know, a television producer. You don't even say filmmaker. No. You say, I'm a biologist. I'm an explorer. I'm a conservationist. That's, that's critically important from your perspective, isn't it?
2: It is. Yeah. It's uh. it's a, I don't want anyone to steal. We only have so much time. I don't want to waste any of that time on, you know, and I've done it before in my past. When I was younger, I would go. I would try to do as many trips as I could. Mm-hmm. And I still like to see different places, but I quickly realized that I would rather go to, um, you know, I'd rather go someplace for 10 days rather than seven days. I'd rather go for 14 days rather than 10 days and just kind of immerse myself and kind of see how these systems and areas change. And and when you go to some of these places for four or days, the weather can be really bad. Right. And mm-hmm. you, you don't, you, you kind of, you're either there on an ebb or a flow and you kind of miss the show and, and so when you go and and spend some time in these areas, you can, you can have a look around and be an observer and, um, but it's costly, it's costly mm-hmm. time-wise, right? So you have to rob Peter to pay Paul and, and you miss your family. And sometimes you miss, you know, I've had the most ridiculous conversations about what a green olive tastes like, or how many donuts <laughs> could I eat right now? Or, you know, or, are um, putting your pants on in the morning and your pants basically fall right back down. Cause you've lost, you know, 15 pounds on a hunt and, um, things like that. But that's, that's. I don't want to waste any time at all. I want to see as much as I can possibly see. And regarding the filmmaking, I would love to start cranking films out. And it's just that, like you said, I have a mortgage, I have bills to pay. And and, um, early on, we realized um, commercially that other companies started reaching out to us and they wanted our kind of secret sauce, if you will, Mm -hmm. for their 30 second national ads or for their 60 second, 90 second, whatever it may be. And, originally we said no as a company and said no we're just working on our films this is what we're going to do we thought we were going to sell sponsorships and Mm -hmm. be sponsored by you know by Benelli and be sponsored by this group and this group and and then we kind of realized that that is also a costly endeavor Mm -hmm. because as you surround yourself with sponsors the work starts to get tainted and you start to have to cross the t's and dot the i's for these companies now rarely and I have come across them. Rarely you will come across a company that says, you know, Hey Pheasants Forever says, Donnie, we're going to sponsor you. We're going to back you. We want nothing. You, you be you. We want to pay you to be you Mm -hmm. go and do it, be yourself and your sincerity and authenticity is what we want to show on the backside. And you do run into the rare company that does that. However, we thought, okay, so we don't now we don't want to go down the sponsor route. So we started talking to some of these brands that wanted us to film for them, and we started doing that. And I realized we built a commercial for, um, I think it was Benelli or Mossberg or somebody. But when when you are able to talk to people about their project, find out what what it is that they want to say, and how it is that they're going to get moved, their family's going to get moved, and then their audience is going to get moved and you get to stand back and I'm not the one on camera, but we're the ones filming and writing and scoring all the music for these, uh, for these pieces. And then you put it out and you see the person that you made it for, you know, tearing up or getting goosebumps and then their families tearing up and getting goosebumps. And then you, we realize early on that, man, that's almost as rewarding as building our own work is building mm. work to help people. And then you see their you're helping their cash register ring and they're growing their love and they're growing their dreams. And, and now you're kind of a facilitator of that and a helper in that. And so that sort of take off. And then we started working with brands like Shields and, Mm. and uh, they called us out of the blue and, and um, we've been working for Shields for something like seven or eight years. We've Mm. done work with Benelli and Mossberg and all these, but it's fun to tell these stories and, um, and it's fun to not be the one on camera sometimes. And And it's
1: interesting because if you go to your website, you, you aren't overtly pushing Zero. any brand. Zero. No. You watch the films. Yeah. You you have a Benelli in your hands, yep. but there's. Hey, this is the sweetest action I've ever. You know, there's none of that no. contrived sort of sales pitch. It's, hundred percent authentic and organic. Isn't
2: mm-hmm. it? And we did. Um um, one of our more commercial films we did uh, it's called winds of Adak mm-hmm. and we did in, in Alaska that was a commissioned film by Benelli um, they paid us to go there they hired us to and but it was really cool because Benelli came to us and and um, you guys know Lee chose mm-hmm, I assume sure, right yeah. so Lee's the one that orchestrated that whole project and Benelli called Lee because he's a longtime um shooting content yeah. for Benelli. And,
1: and Tom Dawkins' neighbor. Yep, and Tom Dawkins' neighbor. Mm-hmm. And he
2: said, uh, and Benelli came to them and said, we are coming to the market with three guns, uh, bolt-action rifle and over-under the AU A28 or whatever Yep, in 20-gauge and then the new Super Black Eagle three with their best coating, that saltwater co- mm-hmm. or uh, all-weather coating. And they asked Lee, like, how we want to bring these to market in a unique way. And he just said, oh, you, we got to call Donnie Vincent, And wow. and Lee and I are dear friends. And he orchestrated the whole thing. So, But the cool thing was Benelli came to us and said, no commercialism at all. Just go there. Hunt as you would. Film as you would. And uh, that's how we want these guns introduced. And it was... It was, uh, su- first of all, it was super, super dangerous. One of the most dangerous trips I've ever had in my life. But other than that, it was really fun. <laughs> yeah. I, uh,
1: so it was dangerous. Super dangerous. I, I it. Yeah. it was dangerous from the you know being on the ocean because that yeah. was a Bering Strait, right? Yeah, Bering Sea, yep. yes. Yeah, <clears throat> Bering Sea. And it, But I think the most dangerous, at least from my observation, was untying the caribou <laughs> that had gotten wrapped around in the um, – what was it? Yes. Some sort of cord? Yeah, it
2: was a rope from fishing nets. <clears throat> so yeah.
1: the, the the guy in the boat's holding down the caribou, and you're cutting the – I mean, that to me looked like it was the most dangerous part. Not even close. Not even, <laughs> not even, <laughs> even top ten. No. no? <laughs> we
2: had um, – on the way to that trip, and he – like how we had to go around the island, and, and I just – I can go back there in a, in an Uh. instant. But when we took off in the morning, you know, the swell starts, you know, and you Mm. just see like the four footers and five footers and six footers and eight footers. And then pretty soon we have wind and current and tides. And now these waves are peaking at, I don't even want to guess how tall they were, but they were, you know. 20 feet 25 feet maybe more and you're seeing these black walls and they're totally disorganized this isn't a swell coming from left to right this isn't a swell that you're pointing pointing your bow into this is one wave is coming this way another wave is i mean we were skidding down stuff we were
1: was your captain nervous
2: oh yeah for sure and we lost an engine and like sometimes i was outside and um holding on. I get seasick, uh, but I, it was really funny because I discovered the cure for seasickness and it's total fear, fear, fear of yeah. death. <laughs> there was zero seasickness. So I was outside <laughs> holding onto a metal rod because I just wanted to be outside. And he said, Hey, look, if you, cause a couple of times we had close calls and he ended up getting washed overboard, right? A wave would hit us and come over. And he said, Hey, if, if you fall out, like, I cannot even, we're not turning around to get you. If you fall out, I just literally call the coast guard and say, he fell out here. We don't know where his body's going to be, but it's, and then he, um, he said, we're probably going to roll. We're probably going to roll on a couple of these waves where we're going to capsize. And then the ship will, you know, it's designed to right itself. But he's like, if we capsize and you're outside, you're probably going to let go. And you're, you know, your life is over with, but I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be inside. I didn't want any piece of it because if we were going to sink or if we were going to go down or whatever I wanted to be outside and there's you're going to die everyone's going to die anyway and so like even I was with a captain this year I won't say his name but I was with a captain this year and and I was looking around for a safety gear I was like hey where's your bag you know in case something happens and where are our Gumby suits and stuff and he's like oh they're packed up in the bow and and I said well you know shouldn't we have these it wasn't bad it was slightly rough but it wasn't bad I said shouldn't we have these out he's like you're not making it anyway. Mm. Like you're not, none of us are living anyway. So don't fool yourself. Yeah. Don't <laughs> fool yourself. And he's like, none of us will basically even make it to shore, which mm-hmm. I totally disagree with that <laughs> thought process. Um, but it, but it was scary. It was scary. And even, um, Who? I went, I went and hunted for several days on Adak by myself or with the crew, but, um, you know, without any guides or anything mm-hmm. like that, we just, they just dropped us off. And when they came and picked us up, um, both the captains, Corey and Scott, and they're really, really talented boat captains, but they both pulled up, and they're both white as ghosts, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, Scott, he's kind of a practical jokester, and I said, "What? what's up with you guys, and he's like, we just, we just went through hell to come pick you up, and mm-hmm. he said, I can't, he's like, it's the biggest seas I've ever seen in my life, and these guys have seen big stuff, mm-hmm. and, and I thought he was joking, but as we kept steaming, he was just kind of shaking it off, and I said, You look really shook off. And he said, These he said, Man, he said, We really faced some stuff to come pick you off. He said, We thought we were gonna have to turn around. He's like, The only reason we didn't turn around is we didn't think we could make the turnaround. Wow. And so, um yeah, cutting the caribou free was <laughs> not a problem. It <laughs> was child's yeah, play. It's <laughs> not a problem. But I'm happy uh, that was and that was also cool to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I got to have a bunch of discussions. One of the ways that I write the films that we do is to kind of engage uh, a community of thought and questions between non hunters and hunters and anti hunters and hunters. And people were really perplexed with the fact of allegedly I'm hunting for meat. Allegedly I'm not hunting for horn, but you just literally passed a bull that's sure to die Mm -hmm. and you risked your eyesight or your whatever, how whatever the dangers were in us Mm -hmm. cutting that bull free you risked, those to cut him free and set him free, and then you went and killed another bull right down the beach, mm-hmm. and so um you know, I have to i
1: I thought that too, you know yeah. I mean like it's a natural you know human nature like yeah here he's out hunting caribou, here's one right here,
2: stock, yeah, right, stock, so so
1: explain kind of your thought process yeah
2: so i have I have concerns with the morality of um you know this animal is trapped. Right. And so, um, he has no ability to get away. So there's to take his life in that manner would be in, in my position, unethical on moral, so immoral. So I want to cut him free, but he was also a two year old or a three year old bull. So he has a lot of life to live. Mm -hmm. And so I'd much rather free him and then travel down the beach. And I found a bull that was probably, you know, eight, nine, 10, and he's probably going to die in that area, probably 11, 12, 13 is where he'll lose his life. So I went down and, um, and actually you don't see it in the film, but actually I killed two bulls, mm. um, cause I had two bull tags there in, in the state of Alaska. They want, um, a number of them killed because they go through this kind of boom and bust there. There's not a lot of, um, food for the caribou there. So, uh, so I ended up shooting two bulls, but, um, yeah, there's some, you know, there's a little bit of yin and yang there yeah. and, and uh passing this bull to go and um I would never ever say this to um this is I actually I shouldn't even say it but when we um cut that bull free, you know, he's just kind of looking at us mm-hmm. and he walked over and laid down and then he st- stood up and immediately started grazing. But while we were getting all of our gear together, he was just walking around us grazing really close and one of the photographers that uh works for me and um he the bull was looking right at us and he looked over and he goes now we're going to go kill your daddy. So, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. we'll see in a little bit. But, yeah, that's what, but, you but know. But you
1: did, I mean, it, it comes back to fair chase. It has to be partly, fair chase. Right? I mean, it, all of it has to be fair it, chase. The the ethicalness of letting that, I mean, you, yeah, you could have killed that bull that's tied up in the rope. But, you know, it, it demonstrates the human condition to a point, right? Like, yeah. let that, because yeah. you love the wildlife. That's love it. Of, it.
2: Yeah, and even even legal corners that we're allowed to cut mm-hmm. um you know as far as like deer hunters go like the cell cam or different things like that that people use to um make make their time afield mm-hmm. slightly easier i even have some i don't have questions or concerns i'm not pro or against but um i just think the more you back off of those technologies the more rewarding your hunt is going to be and yeah. so but i you know. It, the line is very very fuzzy the 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 shade is very very gray right because we use if I go and say that and then somebody will say well wait a minute did you drive a pickup truck to the field that you started sure. hunting and yes I did well it'd probably be way more rewarding if you walked true it probably would be probably have a lot more to talk about if I walked from here to Chamberlain South Dakota went pheasant hunting but
0: yeah. that would also take a year and a half <laughs> right.
1: but you're right we are you know everybody has a different threshold but we're In my opinion, we're approaching that threshold. Like you think about forward-facing sonar on boats, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can see fish out in front of you. Mm -hmm. you, You're not not even just trying to find fish anymore. You're fishing for very specific, especially musky anglers. Like, oh, yeah, there's a – musky next to the rock right there yeah. and you know same thing with trail cams you know like oh big charlie you know yep like we name our animals right? yes big charlie's gonna come by at 115 mm-hmm. like clockwork because of trail cams mm-hmm. and, and you're approaching that point where technology is Crossing the line mm-hmm. in the fair chase component of it, at least in my opinion. Yeah, and you're
2: robbing there. you're robbing yourself, right? Because if you use – and it's funny because I've fished with guys that use front sonar, um, front imaging mm-hmm. that I still feel like and know that we are fishing. Who they are, how they are, mm-hmm. how we're going about it, we're still fishing. And then I've fished with guys with front sonar that um, – I shouldn't say I've fished with them. I've been invited with guys that use front sonar that – um, I don't feel like they're fishing. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're hunting for that fish to then to cast to and stuff. And so a lot of the guys that I choose to spend my time with are those that, hey, there's a rock point over here. We're going to cast to it. There's probably muskies on it. There might not be muskies on it, but there were muskies on it two years ago mm-hmm. or last mm-hmm. year we saw muskies or yesterday we saw musky on it and kind of going about that. And so a lot of the guys that I choose, and maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but a lot of the guys that I choose to spend time with, they're – using these um processes and they're using this these tools as uh, a learning a learning moment to where they're like i think this point has muskies on it let's fish it let's see how these fish and then as they go over it if they see a muskie suspended off the point she's eight feet off the bottom she's 11 feet down from the surface and they say huh so that they're not sitting on the bottom. They're not sitting tight to the rocks. They're sitting suspended off and they'll use it as, mm-hmm. okay, now we'll maybe try a different bait next time. Or now they can um, realize or see how that muskie she's laying. But yeah, I mean, we're, we all have to make our own decisions. And fair chase is a big, that's a, it's a, if we're taking an animal's life, you should, something that you should, um, harbor. Uh, yeah, you
1: chasing the experience or are you chasing the Instagram photo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'm going to backtrack yes. a little ways. So this is the moment where you lay on the couch and tell me your, 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 your background. Uh, so I look up your, your biography. You grew up in Connecticut. And I did. for whatever reason, that just stuns me. You Uh know, because I have this vision of Connecticut in, you know, white picket fences, um, you know, mid-Atlantic, you know, wealthy. So I looked up, okay, who's from the Constitution State? I didn't know it was a Constitution (laughs) State either. So I've got a background in baseball. So some baseball names come up there. Uh, Paul Giamatti, who was the son of A. Bartlett Giamatti, the commissioner of baseball. is an actor from Sideways. Okay, don't. You know, what was that line? Don't don't give me no stinking Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know John Mayer. Um, uh, oh, bit back to base. Jeff Jeff Bagwell, Hall of Famer. Chris Drury, hockey player, and also won the Little League World Series. You remember Chris Drury? Yes. Yeah, Chris Drury was awesome. Uh, Max Pacioretty, Montreal um, Canadiens, and a lot a lot of actors and act- actresses. Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Close, Catherine Hepburn, Michael Bolton, P.T. Barnum. <laughs> I type in biologist. I type in Hunter Donnie. There's nobody. It's you. <laughs>
2: I own that category so, from Connecticut. So, yeah,
1: Connecticut. So I, I, I did more research on Connecticut, preparing for this podcast, than I've ever <laughs> studied Connecticut. How how did you go from growing up in Connecticut to being an explorer? Like, did you grow up with dogs and hunting and adventure. What's Connecticut like as a kid?
2: So, um, that was the, the longest, windy, windy yeah, you no, know, no, I that. like that. <laughs> so the short story is my mom is from big Lake, Minnesota. So, huh. uh, South of St. Cloud. Okay. And she on a whim, um, so I might get a little bit of my, uh, explorer nature from her, but she on a whim, uh, traveled. And I think as a young lady with one of her girlfriends, uh, across the United States, and ended up on the East Coast. My dad, whose family, he was in the Navy. His family is from northern Maine. And uh, when they had some hardships in Maine, they ended up traveling down to Connecticut to find work. And so my dad and my mom met at, I believe, a naval ball, huh. and then started dating and got married and lived in Connecticut and had me head <laughs> Yeah. And um and so my dad which is really, I don't come, I don't necessarily come from a family of hunters, but my mom's dad from Big Lake, he would travel. And as my mom says, um, he was the only one around the area that would actually travel and hunt. So he would travel out to Montana, Wyoming. He had a rancher that they had befriended out there and he they'd go out there every year for muleys and antelope. Um, and then, so, and he would hunt, my mom talked about that they would eat, you know, they'd have snapping turtle for dinner and mm. and they'd eat, it was pretty common for them to eat squirrels for dinner and pheasants and grouse. And so he was a typical, um, kind of Minnesota forager, hunter forager. And then he'd travel West for antelope and muleys. And then, um, in Connecticut, my dad, my dad's dad, uh, my grandfather, he was a big fisherman. And so he'd, he was a saltwater fisherman. So he'd go and and fish a lot of the Atlantic coast for um saltwater species but my dad um he had a a walnut gun rack hmm. with uh a 12 gauge and a 410 and a 22 he had half a dozen guns and he had hunting knives in the bottom I'll never forget he had a service pistol in the bottom um and I really cherished seeing those things in my life every day See, walking past that gun cabinet hmm. and it had a glass it had the sliding glass the sliding doors with doors. the yeah with the lock with the key lock in the mm-hmm. middle and and um i remember every time he undid that lock and we talked about guns or handled guns it was a really special occasion or if he unlocked the drawer and pulled it out and showed me his hunting knives and all of these things and but he never really hunted hmm. and and i remember him we would drive around i remember he would say he'd point out to you know a, a series of buildings or a strip mall and he'd say this is where we used to hunt pheasants all the time and there's really good pheasant hunting you wouldn't believe the pheasants that we used to see here and the big white tail box we used to see here and and so he was just kind of I was enamored with these stories and and the one thing that he did have was he had a collection of books um my grandparents purchased him a um a book subscription, not a magazine subscription, but a book subscription from Outdoor Life. Hmm. So he gets all these books delivered to him from Jack O'Connor. And so he has all these books on fishing and wilderness survival and camping. And, and oddly enough, and I didn't realize this till I was older, a bunch of books on being in the military as well, being um, army snipers and all this stuff. And so I used to read hmm. all these books and pays for all these books. And so my dad was just enough of a hunter to kind of introduce he'd tell me a story about him and his buddies would go to Northern Maine. And if I'm being honest, I think it was far more about the beer that they had in the trunk and probably the, the weekend at the cabin away from their wives. than I don't remember seeing a lot of pictures of deer mm. or even any pictures of deer. And so, um, I think, you know, he would go on little trout fishing trips with his buddies or, uh, bird hunting trips, but there are very, very few and far mm. between. I was the one that wanted to go hunting. And I remember, um, I would ask him, he'd ask me what I wanted for my birthday's October 29th. And so he'd ask me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want you to take me hunting. Hmm. I don't want anything. I just want you to take me hunting. So occasionally he would take me squirrel hunting. And I remember we'd sit in the woods and I'd point the squirrels out to him. You know, he, he'd be sitting on the log next to me eating a, he'd always eat an apple or a box of raisins. And I'd say, stop, stop, stop. You know, I can see a squirrel <laughs> coming or, or I'd say, dad, right here, there's deer and he'd say no kidding you see a deer and because in Connecticut we weren't we weren't seeing a lot of these so I'm like no there's legs look through there and so it's kind of like I felt like even though I was a little kid I was sitting on a log with my pops going hey stop (laughs) stop moving and stop and like look around and so um, and that's continued on through today I now take him um, it's slowed a little bit now because my mom needs him to be around a little bit more but I started taking him hunting taking him deer hunting and Mm. And um, he, in fact, he killed his first buck, which was an absolute monster in Wisconsin when he was 70. It's really funny because he killed this deer and I lost my mind. It's still one of the greatest hunting days I've ever had. He killed an eight and a half year old buck that was on one of my hunting leases that I I personally had been hunting for three or four years. And I'd never seen this deer. And then I'm hunting with my dad and he, and he ends up killing it on like November 4th in this rainy, misty afternoon. Mm. And it was awesome. But um, I asked him, I beat the hell out of him when he killed this deer i was just punched him I, I picked him up and i kind of threw him on the ground and i was punching him some more and, and he was just he was on the ground cowering and it was, it was really quite funny and then um i asked him i said how, how is this your first buck and he said yeah this is my first buck and i said how old are you and he said i'm i'm 74 uh-huh. I was like, "Oh my god, you killed your first book at seven and then it was funny cuz when he got home, uh-huh. he texted me. He's like, "Hey, I just talked to your mom. I'm 75." <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you maybe gave him a
1: concussion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I I I thumped him so good. Yeah. And oh my word. <laughs> well, who was more excited? Oh, here? I was <laughs> I was so
2: excited and I just I was literally placing him mm. and um he had a he we gun hunted it all the time. Mhm. But we saw very little because gun season in the Midwest can be tough. Mm -hmm. If you're hunting public land and you're unwilling to really hike to the other side of the swamp or you're unwilling to split the hairs, you're going to see very little. Your experience is going to be, while magical, I actually don't like when I hear guys talking about the Orange Army and all these things because Mm -hmm. I think there's something that's really beautiful about the Orange Army. I think there's something really beautiful when you can sit in the woods and be like, oh, there's a guy over there and there's a guy over there. But if you really want to kill a deer – there are hairs to split there. And that is not something that he and I ever did. I just followed his lead. We'd go in the woods a short ways, sit down and, and then, you know, we would kind of talk about, and he'd drive around and we'd look at other people's deer and things like that. But on this day, um, the deer walked out and I looked out and, and, um, and I thought, oh my word! And by this time, we had transitioned into a crossbow. Mm-hmm. So I said, if you start hunting with a crossbow, we're going to start seeing some really amazing things. And mm-hmm. I started taking him to the woods, and I'd show him box bit making scrapes and all these things we'd see. And he looked at me and he said, "How is this what you see?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "You know, because we had this buck come out in September and make this huge scrape in front of us, and it just so happened that the licking branch, the buck, you know, they're they're using to identify each other and to, uh, but it was like." maybe 7 or 8 feet off the ground so this buck mm. would stand up on its hind legs and just rub its face and my dad I looked over at my dad his eyes were huge mm. and uh and he looked at me and he said is this what you see and I said yes and he said how wh- how often I said all the time mm. almost every day and he said you got to be kidding me and so this deer walked out and I said oh I said oh, my word dad I said the biggest buck on this farm just walked out it's maybe 30 yards away and, uh, and I said, do you see him? And it was really funny because it was in the wide open. And he walked out of this aspen thicket. and it was standing in an uncut bean field. And I said, do you see him? He said, I don't. I don't see him. I said, right here. I was describing to him. And then all of a sudden he said, oh, my word. He said, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And this buck is standing there. The buck turns and starts walking away. And I said, just stare at him. I said, you take as many mental images as you can because this is the largest deer you are ever going to see in your Mm -hmm. life, certainly in Wisconsin. This is, you know, a true rarity. I was hunting this deer on 153 acres, but really rare the deer makes it that long in heavily hunted, Mm -hmm. uh, heavily pressured areas. And so for whatever reason, that deer is just walking, and he just stops, and he looked over his shoulder, and he turned, and he just slowly started walking our way. And I said, Dad, we're going to try to kill this deer. And he said, Okay. So I literally—he's facing straight south, and the deer was coming from the east, and so I reached down, I picked him up in his chair, picked him up, and you I picked up your dad. Yeah, picked him up and sat him down. So it was canting, and I turned the crossbow, got it all ready for him. I had it on sticks, and, um, and it was really funny because that day he said, "What time do you want me to come over?" And I said, "Come over at one, and then we'll drive to the property and we'll start hunting." And he goes, "Okay," and I go, "No." Never mind. Come over at 11. I'll make you lunch, and then I'm going to go outside and I'm going to challenge you to a bunch of tricky crossbow shots. Mm. And so he's like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> and so I did. I made him lunch, and then I brought him out back, and I'd cock his crossbow, and I'd be like, Okay, so you're leaning over. The deer is at four yards. You know, where would you shoot it? And he'd shoot it, and then I do one at 30 yards, and he'd shoot it, and then I'd do one at 30 yards, but I'd make him shoot through a bunch of brush and like under a log, and I just wanted to challenge him so he's mentally ready for that mm-hmm. night. Luckily I did because I moved him and I took the crossbow and uh, I had to stand in front of the crossbow once and I said, listen, I'm going to take the safety off because I had to because the deer was coming. And I said, you don't put your finger near that trigger because I have to go in front of the crossbow for a half of a second and open up the window. So he's like, okay, I won't. So he's just sitting there and I opened up the window and the deer is just slowly walking and I lined it all up so that I could see down the scope. And so he was just ready, and as soon as that deer stepped, I just I stopped the deer, and I just said, Dad, second crosshair. And, and he was just sitting there, and he said, second crosshair, and I said, second crosshair. And the deer stepped, and then he stepped right next to a big, huge cottonwood. And I just went, Meh. he stopped, and I said, second crosshair. And I'll never forget this, because that deer had a cocklebur hmm. stuck in its fur uh-huh. exactly where basically the heart and lungs connect. Uh-huh. And I said, Right behind the front shoulder, and he shot, and I watched his bolt literally push that cocklebur into the deer. And um, and as soon as he shot the deer, I slammed the window shut, and I just started beating him up.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it was awesome. It was, it was so amazing.
1: It sounds like I mean, it, it, the way you tell that story is a highlight of your life.
2: It was. It was unbelievable and then um I slammed the window and I just I picked him up literally by his arms and he was just looking at me and I just started I said you just killed the biggest buck on this farm I said I can't believe we just and I sat him down in his chair and then i was still overwhelmed so I picked him up again and <laughs> was screaming at him and then I set him down and then I punched him in the arm like three times and he just <laughs> <laughs> and so then I said just stay here let me go look hmm just for a second I just want to sneak out because everything with him was kind of a big production I said Mm. I said just let me sneak out and just look at where that deer ran and I'll never forget this because I snuck out I'd reloaded the crossbow and I snuck out there and I got to where the deer was standing and I looked and in my mind's eye I thought that's really weird the beans look purple to me and I was thinking about the light Mm. and I thought that's really funny it's so cloudy and misty and overcast that the beans look purple to me and I brought my binos up and I was just thought oh my word there's blood bleeding out everywhere everywhere." Mm. it was there the blood trail was so fantastic Mm. that i had a tough time following it because there was blood 10 feet over there and 20 feet over there because the deer was bleeding so profusely and uh it was just a an an absolutely incredible evening and he we got to the deer and he was choked up um that he had taken the deer's life Mm. and uh and he said, Are you sure it was old enough to kill? And I said, Absolutely, it was old enough to kill and and then um yeah, it was only an only an eight pointer, but it was so big and heavy and wide that the miraculously the exact same night that I that he killed that deer, a friend of mine killed a hundred and seventy seven inch buck hmm. in not far away from that and um a few days later um, we had both racks in my buddy's garage and we could take his 177 inch deer and set it in the middle of my dad's, wow. um, a pointer cause he's so big and heavy and huge. So it was, anyway, it was just, I'll never forget that night.
1: And, well, was there a meal that followed that? That was super special with your dad?
2: Yeah. I mean, um, yes and no. Like we, you know, I just tried to preserve that as much, like even mm-hmm. when we were taking him out, I went and got an old fashioned deer cart and I loaded him up and just walked him out and he just, um, walked behind me and um, he had and 75 at this time 75 and he's walking behind me and he and he goes hey he always says to me hey are you trying to kill me and I always say to him you want me to answer that and he says no mm-hmm. and say because I'm always asking him to do difficult things mm-hmm. and one year I took him up to the arctic circle and I said hey would you like to go up to the arctic circle and hunt caribou with me he goes no I go, you, you wouldn't like that? I go, no, absolutely not. He goes, I'm not going up there. He's like, you're nuts. There's bears, the wolves, the airplanes. I'm absolutely not. And I just sat there and listened to him. I go, you're not going to go. He's absolutely not. I said, you have no interest. He's none. He goes, I have zero interest. And I go, okay, great. Here's your airplane ticket. <laughs> this one when we we'll leave. This is where we're going. I have all your bags. And he's just looking at my mom like, what? Uh, and so I took him up there. It was a riot. It was an absolute riot. And, I,
1: and did he have fun?
2: He had a blast, and he killed a really big bull, and I pushed him to an absolute breaking point. He's like, I don't know how you do this stuff. He's Mm -hmm. like, could barely walk, and we'd hunt a day, and he'd have to take a day off. We'd hunt a day, and he'd have to take a day off, but I pushed him really hard, and and he was, you know, a couple times we ran into big grizzly bears close, and he's like, yeah, I could just tell he's, like, thrilled, and I'm like, just look at him. I'm like, he's not going to bother us at all, and, you know, big sow walks by with cubs, and he's like, is she going to attack? I was like, no, she has no interest in attacking us. She's raising her family, you know, and. And he was just, yeah, he's just absolutely thrilled. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we've talked around this a couple of times, biology degree, yeah. you know, p- uh, potentially going to become a doctor. Yeah. You ended up at the University of Minnesota. I did. Right? Yep. How, uh, explain like the leap from Connecticut to the university. You know, yeah. Okay. You, so I'm sorry. Becoming yeah. becoming a biology major, like fill in that gap for us.
2: So, um. As, we, as I was growing up in Connecticut, my parents, for uh, whatever reason, they just decided that they wanted to move. Um, I have a brother and a sister, and they were older and out of the house, and and my parents were just, I think, trying to slow down. And my dad had a really long-term job that was going to be coming to an end, and so they had this opportunity for a new beginning and... and um, so my mom's whole extended family was still in Big Lake, Minnesota, mm. and so and obviously my parents knew that I had a deep love for hunting and fishing. So I you thought, think? would you be interested <laughs> in going to Minnesota? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I would. Mm. You know, it's just a bounty here compared to Connecticut. And mm. So that's what brought us here. I finished high school in Big Lake, and oh, then okay. and then ended up just off of that brochure that um, the moose on the yeah, cover. Yep, and I went, and I had a very, I was very unsuccessful in. Um, high school and um I didn't put together until much too late in life that the harder you work this week is the the further you're going to go next week mm-hmm. and I really really struggled to put those things together and and um and so I went to go see the admissions lady at the University of Minnesota and she and this sounds like she was being rude, but it was, we were both laughing. It was so funny, but I showed her my transcripts and she said, absolutely not. Are you getting into this university? <laughs> she's like, are you nuts that you just think you scr- scratched off a lottery ticket? There's no way you're getting in here. Huh. And she's like, we're ranked third in the country or whatever it was. And she's like, we turned down students that have 10 times the credentials that you have. And, and I was just like, yeah, like, well how are we going to figure this out? Cause I want to go. And she's, she's like, are you serious about this? And I said, yeah, I want to do this. I want to work on wildlife and this. And so she gave me, I won't tell you the courses cause it's embarrassing, but she basically said, cause I'd never even had algebra in high school or whatever. And she said, you're going to have to take uh pre algebra one and two. You're going to have to take college algebra. You're going to have to take geometry, trigonometry. You're going to have to take pre calc one, pre calc mm-hmm. two, a second language, English one, English two, And there was a few other courses. And she said, you go take all those and come back to me with your grades. And she's like, we'll talk about getting you into the College of Natural Resources. So I went and took all those courses and um, stared at the ceiling a lot at night and worked my butt off. And and I went back with my transcripts. And she's like, yeah, you're in. So I got in.
1: Yeah, right on.
2: And then I wasn't, you know, I did fine as a student. But most of my classmates did Measurably better than I did, but when push came to shove out of school and I started getting jobs in wild places the the guys that I were interviewing with uh Ken Gates of the world, they didn't really care about my academics at all. They didn't, they didn't look at my transcripts. They were just like, look, we're going to drop you off in a horrible place, and we're not picking you up until nearly October. Can you handle that? And I was like, yeah, that's the one thing I'm positive of. Like, mm. You can drop me off in May and pick me up in October. and uh, Yeah, I'm not going to complain, not once. And, and uh, that's how I started to kind of cut my teeth. Mm. And, but then I realized I started seeing peers of mine that I worked in the field with not returning to the field Hmm. the year after two years after because they they worked themselves into a regional job or a desk job to where they're like okay now they're running the science from inside the office and and I just thought oh boy I took I thought I was going to be in the field all the time Mm -hmm. and I didn't put two and two together about the the component of you know chasing grant money and the component of you know, pleasing the politics and mm-hmm. all of these different things and so I thought, Okay, I gotta come up with something else and and um and it was awesome. It was amazing and, and I worked for some I worked for a different professor at the University of Minnesota studying uh tigers in Bangladesh and Nepal and hmm. I did some rough grouse work in northern Minnesota and then mostly salmon work in Alaska but it was fascinating. I learned a lot and I learned that I knew very little and I knew to keep my uh you know, keep a library close so I could always do my research and, and I also learned through um observation, I realized that you can read something in a book like I learned this with the rough grouse. You can read all about rough grouse. But I was going out and doing um, log studies and vegetation studies. And I was walking 30 kilometers a day, finding drumming logs and listening to them. And, and you know, it was quite fascinating. And, to, and I would start um, spending time on drumming logs with drummers. And they'd come and sit on the un- other end of the log. And I realized that as I would bump them off the log, they would leave for a certain amount of time. But their territoriality would... Mm-hmm force him to come back and so then I just kept moving close to their log and I realized they'd run not as far away the next time until Mm. at some point I'm sitting on the log and he's on the other end of the log (laughs) drumming and we're looking at each other and it was just a really awesome experience to kind of see these animals Mm and and um yeah so I just learned a lot and and uh and then my hunting career just kind of started to people just started asking me more and more questions about hunting and and then i I'd be featured in a magazine article and then I'd be, um, I started doing some work with Sitka gear okay. and, um, and they they had a a guy on staff, um, who was a film guy. And I ended up, they asked me, they said, we think you guys would be great together. You should do a project with him. And, and, um, I did. And, and, uh, he wasn't a, he wasn't a, a good guy. He was fine enough. He's very, very talented, wickedly talented, but uh, we just had very different philosophies on what was right and what was wrong. Mm. And, um, And he had two very gifted gentlemen that were working for him at the time. And uh, I just approached those two gentlemen and said, hey, uh, I'm going to leave and start my own production company even though I know zero Mm. about production, none. But I said, you know, I think there are stories to be told and I think if we film them beautifully and we score the music beautifully and we write them beautifully that people would respond to them. And those two guys said, yeah, we'll come with you. And so Mm. that was in 2011.
1: So if I can... String the dots together and yeah. tell me if I'm right. Really. So you're, you're in love with the biology, which yeah. is why you went and got the degree, right? <clears throat> and you're, you said you added two and two together, and you see all these people who are biologists ending up with desk jobs. Yeah. And you saw an opportunity to marry the biology, which hunting is based off. It the is. The biology, Yeah, hundreds right? are observers, yeah, 100%. And you're like, well, here's a way for me to remain in the field, Really immerse yourself and do it through filmmaking, where you can inspire others to care about the biology, care about the habitat. and am putting a lot of words in your no, mouth, that's but does exactly that correct. Reflect it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly correct. And I've and I've worked on in through being a hunter. I've worked on a couple of habitat projects, and um, they are insanely rewarding. I had a, a piece of land that I had in um, where my dad killed that buck. Mm. Uh, the landowner he had it was row crops um, when when I first got there and and um we're standing there in the rain and mud one day and he was angry with the farming that was on his land because he had um he'd recently lost a son and him and his son used mm-hmm. to go out there and kind of walk through the grasses and everything and and uh he's standing there and he's like what what's what's with all this mud and i said well they're you know they're just turning the field over and he said i don't, I don't want this anymore and i said well i can if you want me, I can restore everything that was natural out here. And, and, uh, and he said, would you? And I said, yeah. And it was cool. Cause I never, when I would hunt that place, I would see lots of deer, but I would never see pheasants, never see rough grouse, never see snakes or frogs or songbirds. Very few. I see the same species over and over and over again. And I ended up, it was 27 acres. Um, he didn't want me to touch the timber. So I just worked with that field, but I turned it into, um, warm season grasses and, and, uh, man, like, it really exploded with. I'd see um, box turtles and I'd see garter snakes and tons of pheasants. I couldn't believe it. It's like, where in the heck did these pheasants come from? Like, where have they been living all this time? And they started mm-hmm. showing up and the roughies, the rough grouse were everywhere. And I go out there to shed hunt. I see these rough grouse and they're displaying and oh, mm-hmm. it's so cool. And mm-hmm. um, I remember I went out there with my son one time and he was in. Um, like turquoise pajamas and they were striped he was really little this is gonna be a horrible story (laughs) (laughs) I'm probably gonna have to talk to the authorities after this but I told him I said hey buddy stay right here right here I'm just gonna walk right over here like 150 yards grab something and I'm coming right back you stay like in this little chunk of woods you stay right here Uh and uh so I came back and He's gone. And I was like, oh, his mom's <laughs> going to murder me. <laughs> and uh, so he's gone. And so I, all of a sudden I hear him. I can hear his voice. And so I walk through the woods and I get eyes on him. And I have videos on my phone to prove this. But he's walking through the woods with a rough grouse. And him and this grouse are just wa- he's talking to the rough grouse the whole time the <laughs> grouse and the grouse is just walking right next to him, and they are just going through the woods together, checking stuff out and and I just and all of that stuff started to kind of occur huh. and so I saw really what habitat can can change and then you you know you start to really realize what soils are. And what grasses are, and you you know, a lot of times people might confuse pheasants forever or quail forever as saying, oh yeah, okay, so hunters want to raise pheasants they can kill Mm. them. Got it. They want to have better days of field, but uh, really nothing could be further from the truth. And even if that was the goal, even if that was the underlying motivation, everything else from the ground up uh, benefits wholeheartedly from the restorations. And if we would, as a people, if we can get our heads out of our... Offices, we could really do a lot of good because there's a lot of land out there that's quite wasted right now and sits there dormant or sits there. Um, you know, I hate to say this. I just I did a podcast. You guys know who Andy Stump is? Navy Seal. I don't. It's, think uh, I don't know. Very decorated, very brilliant uh, SEAL Team Six counterterrorism gentleman, and he's, I mean, he's a, a superhero. And um, and I just had a conversation with him, and and I just thought, you know, we have. How many people's houses in the United States are within 15 minutes of a Walmart? Do we really need all of these WalMarts? Do we really need all of these, uh, all all of this industry? Does every town need a Home Depot? Mm -hmm. Does every town need, you know, whatever it is, a Target? And or or could we drive just a little bit further and have a little bit few more wild space? And even people that don't hunt or fish, I wonder if we could convert more of this land to wild space. what would that do to their lives if they started paying attention? And I know this from my own experiences because before I took ornithology in college, I thought I had a fair grasp of what was around us as far as birds. You know, I'd see cardinals and blue jays and robins and European starlings and cowbirds, and you'd see these things and say, yeah, okay, I know kind of what birds are. But when I was in school and I learned all about all these different birds, I, I was embarrassed and astonished when I started Hunting a different place, and all of a sudden, I'd see a bird that I think my mind was just saying, "Oh, that's a sparrow right there. That's a sparrow." But you see a, a tufted titmouse, and you're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, that's a totally different species." Or you see a brown creeper, and you say, "Well, that's not just a sparrow; it's a brown creeper." And then you start seeing all these warblers, and you're like, what, How did all these little painted birds get past my eye before? Mm-hmm. How how come I've never seen them before?" And now that I'm looking for them, I'm seeing them everywhere. And so I wonder if people, if you educated people and you started to change the land, you started to make it a little bit more wild, and you told them what they are looking for, and you had them invest in it, I wonder if they'd start seeing things that they're you know, really not seeing right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Or even uh, as you talk about every um, town having a Home Depot and a while, I, I immediately think of all the Leopold's quote about you know people think chicken comes from the grocery store, right? Yeah. That bird and just meat in a styrofoam package, and they're completely disconnected, let alone the Kirtland's warbler, right? Mm-hmm. They're so disconnected in today's age that they don't even know that the high meat that they're buying in a styrofoam package came from a bird mm-hmm. that depends on land and mm-hmm. how we treat the land, let alone the warbler, mm-hmm. you know? It's just, it, it, you just think about Leopold's impression of that, you know, and he knew the, all of this. Yeah, he knew all and of this. Then why do you know it? Because biology. He's and, paying attention in hunting and living connected to the land.
2: Yeah, he says, "I don't want to live in the future when there's going to be no wilderness." He said, "Thanks, yeah. thank, thank goodness, I'm not going to be around when there's no wilderness." Yeah. How, how do you even know? I mean, back then there was a lot of wilderness still when he was writing these, but he already saw the right, he already saw that industry is going to win.
1: Right.
2: Yeah, or has the potential to. But Mother Nature also has a, a pretty she mighty hammer that she, so. can, that she can strike.
1: Well, before we get too dark, <laughs> and this is where we're going to bring Marilyn in um, to the conversation to tell the story of all of us getting connected here. Before I go there, I want to thank Onyx Hunt, national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and our wildlife habitat mission, helping us create more habitat and Public, public lands for all of us to go explore, chasing whitetails, chasing warblers around with binoculars, and most importantly, chasing bird dogs around uh, for pheasants and quail. Download the uh, Onyx Hunt app right now and use the code PFQF and you can get 20% off and Onyx will make a donation back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission. So, Marilyn, thank you for, for sitting and listening for so long. You know, it's probably odd to some folks ears, president and CEO sitting and listening <laughs> to the podcast, um, but this is where you and your husband, Clyde, come into the story connecting with Donnie Vincent.
0: So, it actually goes back a long, oh, it a goes lot longer than, that. than Donnie knows. So, I don't know this. You had talked to Clyde and I probably about seven or eight years ago, and you'd said to Clyde who would you want to see yeah. on a Saturday night banquet? And so we had talked about it, and I would really appreciated it. And so when you brought it up to Clyde, he was like, oh, man. If <laughs> I could pick anybody, it'd be Donnie Vincent. And you had said, well, you know, we've actually had a couple of conversations. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out. And then three years ago, we'd gone to do a training seminar in Alaska um, for a Novda chapter up there. And Ken Gates, who you mentioned earlier, was the organizer. And we were sitting around talking about It probably was Pheasant Fest that was coming up, something. And I think Clyde brought up Donnie's name. And Ken was like, well, I know Donnie. Hmm. That was then precipitated a call to you, I think, three years ago. I said, hey, would you be able to speak at Pheasant Fest? And it didn't work out that year. And then we had just kind of let it lie low. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) it was a couple of months ago. (laughs) Clyde calls me and goes, um... I did something I never do. <laughs> <laughs> so, But I was at Fleet Farm, and I thought I saw Donnie Vincent. And he said, I, like, I had to really suck it up and go. Cause he didn't want to bug you. And he was like, are you Donnie Vincent? He said, and then we talked for an hour and a half.
2: We did, in the fishing <laughs> aisle. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. Yeah, he did two drive-bys. <laughs> Uh, with his cart, <laughs> and then does this in. happen
1: to you a lot? It, yeah, it, I mean it happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, it ha- fleet fire and, yeah, and it happens. It happens
2: occasionally. Yeah, but he uh, and he throw and He said, "Are you Donnie Vincent?" I said, "Yeah." And then he introduced himself. And yeah,
0: yeah. And then we were supposed to have dinner. Yep. And your pup got sick. Yeah. Mm. So then yeah, really I, sick. The three of us ended up spending an hour or so on the phone, and just phone. talking through like what could that look like, and yeah. if we ideated, dated, what would the the speech be the topic like? yeah. yeah yeah and
2: that's that's where uh, you know i've i've been asked to speak a few times and i've taken a few uh engagements but um i'm not a person that comes with a lot of um self-confidence in that uh, arena of um what i want to what i have to say somebody wants to listen to so mm. um you know i've oftentimes just kind of stayed in my lane and uh but you know i was intrigued by you guys and we this is now the third time this opportunity has come up and and um and i enjoy public speaking and i enjoy uh meeting and speaking to people i spoke for uh, a while at the uh, ontario fish and wildlife uh, their national banquet they have Mm. up in canada it's a big deal for those guys and uh, it was really rewarding and and uh yeah I'm, i'm very much looking forward to this i i know my time on stage in front of the people will be uh you know, brief, and so I just want to really enjoy those minutes and and uh, you know and and uh, be myself and yeah.
0: We're looking forward to it. it. You have a lot of characteristics that a lot of our members mm-hmm. have. When when you talk to our members to Bob's listeners, they talk about their kids, their grandkids, and their dogs. Yeah. And and the memories, and they don't they don't brag about all the limits they've got. It, that's not really what it's about it's no. about man i walked this beautiful piece of property mm-hmm. that you know last year was uh, just complete had no biodiversity man i came back this year there was coneflowers and then mm-hmm. you know and and the changes they see and the shifts they see in the bird populations mm-hmm. so i think that your message will mean a lot to them
2: yeah i think it'll be fun
1: to experience fantastic things you have to put yourself in fantastic places and that does that speaks to what you're talking about our, our members really appreciate that that philosophy that you bring forward i don't want you to give away your speech but can you give us a like a 2 minute cliff notes of what you know as we're recording this in late december what you're thinking about for kind of your key message
2: yeah and so there's we we talked about this there's two kind of elements that um, one that really resonates with me, um, as I travel around and do a lot of the different things. And even when I'm spending my own time in a field, um, I took a class in college, a photography class and, and, um, and we had this, uh, we had this task that we had to shoot a five, uh, photo image, uh, a, a series from a single event or a single kind of storyline. And, and um, I shot mine in cardiovascular surgery because that was my day job when I was in school, and so I went and got permission from a patient and said, "Hey, I'm shooting for photography classes." Said, yeah, absolutely. And um, and his case uh, turned out to be a particularly bloody one, uh, and so it was you know I had a lot of what people might think would be interesting or gory or or um, fantastic, if you will, imagery to shoot in that. And and I went and shot this series of five photos or Multiple photos, and I went and sat with my professor, and because uh, it was a big final project, and he was giving each student some time to kind of neck it down, and, and I laid all these photos out. And uh, do you guys know who Flip Palette is, the professional fly fisherman, by chance?
1: I, I don't know the name oh either. so he's he's
2: a he is a soulful soulful man he's a, a tremendous uh, inspiration to me and a mentor of mine hmm. um, from Florida but he is a soulful soulful man but um, that my professor kind of looks like him and he had his glasses <laughs> resting down on his nose and his hair is all kind of a mess and he had a big beard and and uh he kind of started he's looking at all my photos and he started laughing and I said what 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 are you laughing at and he said most of the students you're colleagues in class are going to struggle to get to five photos and he's like you're going to struggle to get down to five photos Mm -hmm. and i said you think so and he said yeah and he said if i were you i'd go with these five or whatever and and some of them were pretty bloody and and um had a lot of contrast and but the ones that he um were were picking were really detailed really tight imagery photos and and um i said i'm really surprised you picked this one over this one and I said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, the um, it's easy." He said, "In everything we do in life, the closer we get to it, the more interesting it becomes to us." And so I thought, "Hmm, is that true?" And then from that day forward, in everything that I've done, that's been true. In how I look at a whitetail buck, or hold a set of antlers, or even breaking, an you know, you can look at it in the sense of breaking an animal down. There's one essence of you walk into someone else's territory and you, um, look at this habitat that somebody else has planted or has grown naturally. And you go and you hunt it and you maybe take a bird or two. And then, um, let's say you were going to take those birds and, um, a buddy or's offered to clean them all. Hey, I'll clean them all this time. And you clean the next ones. Okay, great. But now you take that same scenario to a piece of land that you have then orchestrated yourself and restored all of that prairie and restored all of that habitat and you go and kill the birds and then you go and um pluck the bird yourself and prepare the birds for that night's meal yourself and you are totally invested in and even in that sense of proximity you're also if you actually take a ringneck pheasant and you lay it on this table and you went to a lifelong pheasant hunter and said all right let's talk about the feathers around a ringneck let's talk about the, the ring ringneck's eye. What what color is it? What does it look like? You're not, you're not allowed to look at a bird right now, but you describe it to me. Mm-hmm. And then we then, after you say what you think it looks like, we're going to go and then we're going to pick it apart. Mm-hmm. You've looked at a million pheasants while you've held them by their rear legs up mm-hmm. before you put them in your game bag, but have you ever really looked at them? Because mm-hmm. when you really start to break it down, it'll blow your mind. Mm-hmm. Same with habitat. When you really start to break it down, it'll blow your mind. And when we put all of these things, when we marry them together, um, it's really almost too much to take. And so... I, I love this idea of kind of talking about and giving people the perspective because it lists, lasts them everything in everything in their life, even with your family. You know, you can have a conversation with somebody where you say, Hey, Uncle Bob, how you doing? Everything good? Great. Yeah, good. But when you really start to ask somebody questions and you're really listening and you really start to dive in or you really start to appreciate um, texture on a clothing or texture in a wood table or mm-hmm. uh, a painting or whatever it may be, like you really start to find details that... We only have so many seconds. We only have so much time. So you might as well fill them as full as you possibly can. A lot of people like to talk about live life like you're dying, which none of us can do because mm-hmm. if we were living life like we were dying, none of the three of us would be sitting here. Nobody would report to work. <laughs> and We're certainly not going to do a podcast. We're going to spend it with our children, our loved mm-hmm. ones, and certainly we're going to go to special places, but we can emulate that. Mm-hmm. We can try to rob those moments. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that's kind of a methodology that I'm going to talk about. And then, I don't know how I'm going to tie this in. I really don't as of yet, but, um, I was talking to you guys on the phone about, I've done a lot of really big hunts and, um, a common question I get asked is if you could only do one hunt the rest of your life, what would it be? Mm -hmm.
1: The bucket list question. Yeah.
2: And a lot of people are pretty, um, taken aback by my answer, which would be either, um, a pheasant hunt or a duck hunt to where I can have. Um, some close friends with me we have our dogs we have our shotguns we have our decoys we have our boats or we have our our field and and um and people don't even really see me as that much of a bird hunter even though I do quite a lot of it and Mm. which is funny because I have my professional life in which I film I'm almost never a field without a camera but I have my professional life in which I film and then I have my private life when I have my free time and like for instance I just had three free days, um, not last week, but the week before. And I went to Lake Michigan and I went and shot golden eyes out of a layout boat mm. and I didn't film it, didn't photograph it, but the, the, I had two free days and I went and shot ducks on Lake Michigan and that's what I want to do. And then, um, I did a Polaris filming piece this year in South Dakota in uh, Gregory, South Dakota. And it's a white tailed deer, mule deer hunting piece. And I had two free days at the end of that hunt. And I went pheasant hunting. They said, what do you want to do? And I said, i let's go pheasant hunting, you know? Mm. And so, um, but those hunts come from, uh, a different place than, than a uh, mountain sheep or a moose or, um, everything has its specialities, but those hunts, when you can lay in a, a in a field around goose decoys with your buddies or, mm. or you can walk a strip. Um, I used to have a pheasant lease in Kennebec, South Dakota mm. when I was in college. And, um, I'll never forget. Yeah, I'd never been there before. All my buddies had been there before. They invited me to be on the lease in the first morning. Um, is it South Dakota that you can't hunt until noon? It used to be. It's 10, 10 o'clock now. now. Okay. Yep. So I think back then it was noon. Yep. And I walked out of the house that we were staying in. We stayed in this little farmhouse. And I walked out of the farmhouse that we were staying in. And there was like 16 roosters standing in the driveway. <laughs> and I had a cup <laughs> of coffee. And I was looking at all my buddies who weren't <laughs> even paying attention. I was like, hey, there's 16 <laughs> roosters in the driveway. And they're like, oh, it, oh there's it's going to get way worse than that, you know. And I thought, and we just happened to have this house that was completely surrounded on three sides by m- huge cattail sloughs. Mm-hmm. And then their whole farm was um, sunflowers and millet. And so thousands, I think, of roosters would fly in during the day and we'd go and hunt. And we'd only take, I mean, Often we didn't take our limit because the two older gentlemen that kind of ran the group, when they were good, they were good. Mm-hmm. And so we left plenty on the table. And, and if you shot a short-tailed rooster you got to talk to, and if you crippled a bird, like, that, that, only two times in my life, maybe I shouldn't admit this, only two times in my life, I've done it a lot, but have I been with people who have counted cripples as um, a loss mm-hmm. and as part of their bag Mm -hmm. those guys have and then a friend of mine that i goose hunt with um in wisconsin if we if he feels as though one is going to lose its life later on when it gets back to the roost that's counted in our bag Mm -hmm. limit which is amazing because he's he's like 25 years old 23 years old or something like that but um it was just it was just cool to see those birds Mm -hmm. and having my cup of coffee which probably said like world's greatest dad on it or something because we'd pilfer the from the old lady that owned the house and and um and just seeing all those roosters and like my buddies were standing around they're like oh just you know you wait and we'd we'd walk a strip and just shoot we would only shoot the pretty ones and we'd only shoot the ones that you know took off and peeled left or took off and peeled right it's the only ones we'd shoot if anything flew funny it wouldn't get shot at and we would get to the end of the row, and we'd have coffee, and we somebody's girlfriend would make brown or wife would make brownies, and so we'd have a brownie and a cup of coffee. <laughs> then we'd walk the second strip, and like if we wanted to, we'd be done in minutes. Mm-hmm. But that was the last thing on our minds, and and um, you savor the moment, savor mm-hmm. the moment, and that's that's kind of where I think I want to, you know, people in South Dakota. Uh, south Dakota is a very important state to South Dakotans and to the rest of us, mm-hmm. and um, people that pass over the Dakotas, both north and south um as just a flat prairie land uh do so foolishly Mm -hmm. uh they are uh two of my favorite states in in the country including alaska and and, uh, people find that hard to believe but they are they are a bounty of birds and waterfowl and deer and and um and the people that call that place home are really i've met some really special people that live there
1: and your filmmaking career based on what i've Studied, I mean, it started in North Dakota, mm-hmm. right, with the, the deer hunt, yeah, of, yeah. Um, and that kind of led to all this. If, if folks want to study up on their own, sure, like what would you point them to that you're most proud of, um, as a way to kind of pre game, yeah, for a national yeah. festive quail classic?
2: So, I did, uh, I've done two short films, uh, really short one is called Who We Are, yeah. and one is called Flourish, they're kind of the same piece. Um, who We Are was never supposed to be seen by the public. It was mm-hmm. made for National Geographic. They want to do a TV show with me, and, and uh, but they're pretty well against hunting. The board for National Geographic is mm-hmm. against hunting. Not against hunting, but they're just against kind of our style of hunting. And so um, they have a really funny kind of common perception of, of, of hunting. So um they said, Hey, we really want to do a TV show with you, but we understand you're a big hunter. We kind of were failing to understand why it is that you hunt. So I put that film together and said, uh, You know, I just basically looked down the barrel of the camera. I never thought anyone was going to see it. So I said some things that I thought were never going to be seen. And then my business partner, he's like, Hey, I think we, I think it'd be great if we put this out. And I said, Absolutely not. And we fought over that for <laughs> a while. And then he eventually won. And I said, Fine, put it out, whatever. And he did. And then, um,
1: and that's, yeah. that's like four minutes long? Yeah, I mean, it's some four four or five minutes long, who something we like that. Are, and it, it yeah. is definitely worth checking out. And I
2: get a lot of people, uh, dads, that say, hey, every season I make my kids watch this mm-hmm. before we go out. I got a lot of um, firearm instructors that say, I w- make all my students watch this before we start every class and make them watch it before we leave every class. Yeah. Um, I've had some guys that aren't even hunters at all um, that have kind of lost their way in life and they say, mm. I found this piece and um, I'm not even a hunter. I don't fish. I don't hunt, but I watch it, it like gets me out of bed and makes me feel alive. And, mm. and, um, and then flourish is just kind of a modern day rendition of that. And um, I was sitting on a snowy mountain on a sheep hunt in Alaska and I was cold and I'd been really scared uh, a few hours before that. Cause I got, I had to cross a, a sheer cliff and ice and snow and, and like, I just, it was super present. And then when I went down, uh the base of the mountain i just told the photographers i was with i was like hey let's record a piece and i just basically had a little temper tantrum about why it is that we hunt and Hmm. that's what flourish is and and um but any of our long-form work the rivers divide terra nova um, winds of Adak" is free online um yeah any of that stuff
1: donny com. check it out Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for spending an hour and a half in the fishing department with Clyde. (laughs) And Clyde, thank you very much for peeling back in Donnie's ear for an hour and a half. Because as if you couldn't tell, we are super excited. I am as well. um, The fact that the tickets are sold out three months ahead of time speaks to the influence you have in this community and the excitement. So thank you for making time to share your message with a whole bunch of people that Share your love of biology and most importantly conservation. Um, because uh that's that's why we exist, right, Marilyn? It is. I'm very thankful for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cool. DonnyVincent.com, uh pheasantfest.org. Like I said, the tickets are sold out for Saturday night. Maybe you can scalp them somewhere. I'll, I can find some and we'll, <laughs> scalp them and raise money for conservation, yeah. right? I think we have a waiting list, don't we? <laughs> we do have a waiting list yeah. at pheasantfest.org uh, as of, as we're recording this. So general admission tickets you can buy to see the show. We got a few tickets left for the concert for conservation with Trampled by Turtles and we have a few tickets left for Friday night's party. Uh, but do please check out pheasantfest.org. March, well, the concert's February 29th, Leap Day. Then March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in Sioux Falls at the Denny Sanford Premier Center. Thank you to uh, all the listeners for checking out this episode of On the Wing Podcast. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise, and especially if it's a black lab, right? You might even uh, put up a grouse or a rooster. Donnie, thank you very much. Thank you.